Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Ruth. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ruth chapter 4. Now that you're uh, nice and comfortable and seated, why don't we stand together, read this passage in Ruth chapter 4. I'll lead us out in this. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so Boaz said to him, Turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here, and so they sat down. Then they said to the Redeemer, Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I might know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. And the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction... The one drew off his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, you are witnesses to this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead on his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and his father, Jesse, the father of David. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, this morning. Thank you for bringing us here. We trust that you've brought us all here for a reason. Lord, and and we just ask that you would speak to us now through your word. Uh, Convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Um, Lord, I thank you for our our faith family here at Tulsa Bible Church. 
um, as we approach a, the fall season here, as the kids get a break from school, I pray that it would just be a restful time for our families to recharge, finish out the fall semester. I pray that you would um, individually work in each of our hearts and lives to draw us closer to you through our interactions, through our friendships. Lord, we pray that the, the truth of redemption and providence and sovereignty, your control that's exhibited in the book of Ruth would be evident to us in our lives. Whatever we're going through, whatever uh, situations you have brought into our lives, we pray for the ability to, um, to live life in a way that would honor and glorify you above all else in a way that centers our hearts and our lives on the truth of the gospel and on the person of Jesus Christ. We ask all of this, Father, to you through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. It's a great Shakespeare who said, the miserable have no other medicine but only hope. Like if Shakespeare lived at our day, in our day, he probably wouldn't have said that. Uh, we have a medicine for everything, from pain to problems to sickness and sadness, you can medicate to take the hopelessness away. One woman has said, the lack of faith and charity can be treated by prayer, but lack of hope is treated with antidepressants. It hasn't always been this way throughout history, and what I want to do this morning is, as we've walked through the book of Ruth, we've seen uh, a situation of hopelessness turn to one of great hope very dark time in the, in the life and circumstances of, of a family and individuals has become very bright and glorious. And I want to take a little bit of time and just, just talk about hope and what the church has believed about hope. It's going to be a very broad overview, not going to get into too many details here, but, but I do want to, want to just share a few things throughout church history. The patristic period, which we would define as the time between 100 A.D. to 500 A.D., was anchored on a strong hope in the second coming of Christ. They made a strong distinction between the first advent, Christ's first coming to die for the sins of the world, and his second coming to rule and to reign forever, bring peace and justice. Their hope was anchored, strongly anchored, in the coming of the king. Uh, it was Justin Martyr who wrote, the prophets have proclaimed two advents, the one which has already passed, in which Christ came as a dishonored and suffering man, but the second, when he shall come again from heaven with glory. Irenaeus taught that the hope of the second coming of Christ was essential to the rule of faith, this body of truth that the patristic fathers believed in and passed on from Christ and the apostles to the generations that would follow after them. The early church was anchored on a, a literal bodily return of Jesus Christ to the earth, they had a great hope and a firm expectation. Their timelines of, of end times theology and how that's all fleshed out, whether there's a literal thousand year reign or whether it's, it's an amillennial period like Augustine would have taught, is a little up for grabs. Uh, they don't die on that hill, we don't have to either. There's a great hope because of the second coming of Christ and that's what they anchored themselves on. The Middle Ages, which we would define as the period between 500 and 1500 A.D., was a little bit different than that. You start to saw a lot of uh, differences of opinions and what people thought about hope. Most believed that they were always on the brink of meeting their maker, whether it was going to be by accident, death by dagger, disease, anything. Your life was very short. You were a very fragile person. 
And so they had to anchor themselves on a, on a deeper hope. And, and this is where voices like uh, Hugh of St. Victor began to present to the church ideas which we would consider as, as extra-biblical. They conceived of an end-times theology that was beyond what we would believe in our Protestant 66 books of, of Scripture and what's there. Hugh of St. Victor was one of the first to develop what we call a personal ex- eschatology beyond what Scripture teaches. He structured the universe into five different layers, or perhaps uh, realms, you might say. The first layer, the top layer, is, is heaven as the abode of God, and the bottom layer being uh, the abode of Satan in hell, and all the differences in between those two. And heaven was reserved for the presence of God and those who gained the merits of Christ through their lifestyle and, and interactions. The early church was uh, through and through about uh, maintaining and gaining a standing with Christ based on your own efforts and what you do in this life. Uh, between heaven and hell, of course, you've got three layers, paradise, earth, and purgatory. Paradise was a place of good but not perfect Christians. There was still time for uh, dead believers to become perfected and to move their way up into heaven. Earth was the place of good and evil. Both dwelled there. People make their choices. They either ascend to the heights of heaven or they descend to the depths below. And then they taught a, something called purgatory, and this is really close to Dante's Inferno and the Divine Comet, uh, Comedy, if you've ever read Dante's work. Uh, purgatory was thought to be a fiery place of evil. Nevertheless, it was a second chance. It was an opportunity. Uh, prayers of the saints that were still living could rescue you from purgatory. And of course, we look at something like this, this personal eschatology, and we say, hold on a second, this is not what I'm reading in the pages of Scripture, and you would be absolutely right to conclude that. The mark of the Middle Ages, however, was this this growing belief that the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the angel of death and Satan himself, the Antichrist, essentially, was not some emperor like Nero, it was not a prophet, a false prophet even like Muhammad. The Antichrist was the Pope himself, the very visual representation of Christ on the earth. And it was that thinking that shaped a lot of their end times theology through those dark ages. Uh, Many theologians and and studied scholars still held true to the creeds of the faith, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, anchoring themselves in the universal truths from the early church, but others didn't, and went and adopted things that we don't believe here at Tulsa Bible Church or Protestants don't believe. After the Middle Ages, you had the Reformation period from about 1500 to 1700. And this was a time when the um, theologians and the pastors, they broke away from the established traditions and sometimes uh, the abusive authorities of the church. And they reformed it. Their intent wasn't to destroy the church altogether. It was to reform it and to go back, back to the universal creeds of the church fathers, back to the scriptures, Ad fontis was the cry of the, um, the humanists that there, a lot of the Reformation fathers believed and, and taught. And so this was a time when we went back to the 66 books of the Bible because at that time the Protestant canon of Scripture was established. And our end times theology of hope was again centered on the second coming of Christ to rule and reign from Jerusalem and to set up his eternal kingdom. 
Once you get to the modern period, after 1700, and, and of course we're postmodern now, so I'm gonna uh, kind of bunch these two periods together. Once you get to the modern period, you saw a drastic change in how people considered eschatology and hope. All the major doctrines of Orthodox Christianity were dragged into court and they were put on trial. And they were found guilty of being unreasonable, uneducated, and unsophisticated. They were tales fit only for the naive, and again, the uneducated. Liberal theologians reduced Christianity to ethics. It centered on Christ as a moral teacher, but nothing more than that. Talk of heaven and hell smacked of um, fables, no longer tolerable for the educated, superstition at best. The result was the idea of a cataclysmic end of history was, was done away with altogether. It was set aside for a hope that was found in the gradual improvement in the evolution of man in society. It taught that our world really isn't getting worse and men aren't becoming worse as time progresses, they're getting better and so is our culture and so is our society. Um, there's a gradual and a, a humanitarian effort toward moral and societal perfection. We can achieve it with or without Christ, whatever versions of that it entails. The Enlightenment in the modern period was much like a, a field dresser. It took a, a carcass, took an animal, cleaned out all the guts, all the heart, all the real soul of Christianity. What it left you with was just a dead carcass. It kind of looked like Christianity, but it really wasn't Christianity at all. Um, it was void of the life and the vitality of the resurrection of Christ, the miracles, the authority of Scripture, the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture. Everything that you couldn't wrap your mind around or scientifically proven was just set to the side and left out in the field to rot and decay. Largely, that's where our culture falls today. And you would think it would be a little bit different considering the 1900s. After all, the beginning of the 1900s, we saw the World War I, the war that was supposed to end all wars. Death and destruction to humanity and all kinds of chaos power corrupted in the ultimate places, left brutality and just a wake of destruction on the human race. Uh, the Great Depression soon followed after that. You have a Holocaust, World War II, nuclear warfare. Humanity simply keeps reminding us that left to ourselves, we will destroy ourselves. We are not the solution to the greatest problem. We need a solution that's outside of us. We're not getting better as a people group. We're getting worse and worse. At no time in history has it been more important to establish an orthodox, a strong and robust theology of, of end times and hope. At no other time in history have we been more hopeless as a people group and as humanity. This is the time when we need stories like Ruth and Naomi to show us the true light of scripture and what a Christian hope can bring into our lives. If you pick up a <clears throat> systematic theology textbook, you'll probably read something around a thousand pages of different categories of theology. It might start with the revelation of God, how he has revealed himself through creation, his general revelation, and through his specific and special revelation through his word and through Christ. You'll read about the person of Christ, his work on the cross, his substitutionary atonement, his death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins to the whole world, to all those who would trust in him. You'll read about a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You'll read about the doctrine and the character of God. You'll read about the church, 
what it's supposed to be, ecclesiology. A lot of different issues will come up in that systematic theology, and usually one of the very last chapters that you'll pick up and you'll start to read is something called eschatology. It's the theology of hope. It's our theology of the end times. The structure of these systematic theologies suggests that hope is just an epilogue. It's just a chapter at the end of a really long book on Christianity. It talks to us about what to believe and why we believe it. In the 1960s, uh, a German theologian by the name of Jürgen Moltmann, Jürgen Moltmann, he began to talk about hope a little bit differently. And he began to suggest that maybe end times theology, maybe hope isn't something that we should read in the last chapter of our systematic theologies, but maybe it's something that should undergird the very first and color everything else. Moltmann said that from first to last and not merely the epilogue, Christianity is eschatology, Christianity is hope. It's forward-looking and forward-moving and therefore also revolutionizing the present. Moltmann said eschatology should not be the end, but Christianity is very beginning. As we close up the story of, of Ruth and talk about the theological implications for our lives today, I want to talk just about this whole idea of hope, the hope that we have from Christ, the hope that we have in a Redeemer, the hope that we have in God's providence, that everything is ultimately working toward an end that he has written from the very beginning, that he has placed us at this point in time in his redemptive history for a reason, and we can be caught up in that end times hope, and it should change everything about our present and the way that we live today. The first thing I want to talk about hope is, is this. Hope is shaped by providence. Hope is shaped by providence. When we pick up chapter four of Ruth, Boaz has just told Ruth after she proposed to him, very risky and bold move from Ruth to Boaz, yes, I will marry you. And yes, I will redeem you. The problem is, is there's a, a redeemer, a family member who's closer than I am. And so he has to reject his right of redemption before I can fully redeem you instead. Look down at verse six of Ruth chapter four. Verse six, then the redeemer said, the closer redeemer, I cannot redeem it for myself, speaking of the land that belonged to Naomi and Elimelech, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. We talked about providence a, a couple weeks ago, and we said that providence means that God is actively working through his creation and sustaining his creation through all things, his purposes, his plans that nothing happens apart from the glorious purpose of God throughout redemptive history. We talked about Erickson and his thoughts about providence. Providence means that we are able to live in the assurance that God is present and active in our lives at all times. We are in his care, and there, therefore we can face the future confidently. As Christians, we do not believe in luck, chance, or karma, God's goodness. His plan and his purpose drives all of these things. And we see that, again, we see God's providence right here at the beginning of Ruth chapter four. And it starts in verse one. Boaz had gone up to the gate and he sat down there and behold. The Hebrew word there is hene. It's meant to capture our attention, focus. There's something significant that's about to happen in this context and you need to put everything else to the side and focus on what happens right here. 
Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And Boaz said to him, Turn aside, friend. Now Boaz goes to the city gate where the influential men would have gathered. And it just so happens that the near kinsman is there when he is there. By chance, it just so happens that there's 10 men, influential men of the city, considered elders, who are there to uh, give their wisdom, to be witnesses to the agreement that's about to be made. It just so happens that this very same kinsman that he meets that day that he goes up to the gate doesn't want to redeem Naomi, Ruth, or the land that belonged to Elimelech. By way of karma, Boaz redeems it for himself, right? By way of fate, it just so happened. All of these things are lining up. The dominoes are stacked and they fall in order just like we would expect them to fall, right? This is the hand and the providence of God behind, in front, and all around both Ruth and Naomi. He is providentially working to redeem them. He is providently sovereign over all of the aspects of their lives, redeeming them and giving them hope. Imagine that you are, uh, you're in this story with Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. Imagine that you are there personally. You see this Moabite widow who comes, and no longer is she a servant working in the fields of a wealthy man. She's actually the wife of that wealthy man. No longer is she childless. She bears Boaz a son, bears Naomi a grandson. No longer is Naomi on her own. They have a rich fellowship with one another. They have a strong faith in God, and they have a wonderful family. They are doing really, really well. We might read the end of of Ruth chapter four, and, and we might say something like this, and they all lived happily ever after, right? Is that, is that the point of the story? Is that the ultimate point of redemption? If Ruth's story is caught up in a greater story, what if it would have ended differently for her? Would that have changed anything in her heart, in her life? Would that have changed anything for us as we read this story? What really is the point of redemption? Can we reduce, reduce redemption to one individual's personal experience? and conclude that God is going to redeem all situations, even our situation, for his good? Sure, this works out for Ruth and Naomi, at least in the context, but what about everybody else? What about my story? What about your story? Situations that you're going through right now? I want to end, and I want to give you just a a warning. And I've never heard anybody really talk about this through the the book of Ruth, and so just bear with me. as we continue. Warning is this, accept no substitutes for final hope and redemption. I think there's a warning behind chapter four in Ruth. And the warning is something like this, accept no substitutes for final hope and final redemption through Christ and his kingdom, rule and reigning and bringing peace to the earth. Jerry Sitzer has a a really great thought in his book, uh, a grace revealed, and he says this. Though we do long for heaven, we must resist confusing sign and reality, resuscitation and resurrection, shadow and substance. In short, we must hold out for the real heaven, heaven not just for our benefit, but for the world's benefit. 
Heaven not simply for our now, but for all eternity. Sitzer says, when our longing for heaven drives us to seek out lesser substitutes, we are headed for trouble. Beware, anything that replaces God is not heaven, but it is an idol. Beware, anything that replaces heaven in God is not God himself, but it is in fact an idol. All that to say, I hope your story goes well. I hope your earthly life finishes on a redemptive side. And don't forget about other people whose stories might not. Don't forget about other people who are in the thicket of it right now. Sometimes Christians suffer from myopia. We fail to see beyond our personal circumstances. To consider other people. Consider the story that God has written on their hearts. Sometimes they don't end as well on this side of glory. Don't reduce heaven to your own personal kingdom, to your own personal experience. There's a reality to heaven and there's a reality to final redemption that we will all realize. And if we restrict it and confine it to something that it is not, we are setting ourselves up for a hope that will not fulfill us and will not sustain us through the difficult times in life. Remember, we reside in this world, but we belong to another kingdom, God's kingdom, an eternal kingdom, where he lives and where everything is always perfect. But until that kingdom comes, we often deal with, with stories that end in bad places difficulties and trials that are hard to bear. Hope is ultimately shaped by God's providence. We're seeing that in the book of Ruth. We're seeing a happy ending to her life, to Naomi's life. But hope is also stationed on a promise, number two. One of the first promises to Ruth in this chapter, chapter four, is found with the, uh, with the sandal incident. You guys catch this? Look down at uh, verse seven, chapter four. This was the custom in former times, Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging to conform a transaction. One drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. You remember, the, uh, remember when George Bush Jr. was president and the reporter threw a shoe at him? A lot of people think that there might have been something cultural about that. Uh, there might be something behind. Do you guys remember that? Or is it just me? Am I making that up? I, th- I thought that was pretty, like it was kind of weird that that all happened, right? Um, This is a very interesting custom. We don't know a whole lot about this custom. There's not a whole lot in the Bible written about removing your sandal, making deals with people, confirming promises, and making transactions. Uh, Covenants and promises were often ratified in the Bible with very dramatic symbolism. We know that that's true. Most scholars think that the action of removing a sandal would ratify this covenant, and it would indicate that the place that one's foot is, is put upon is symbolic of possession. If you give your sandal, means that you possess the land. If you place your foot, you possess the land. Psalm 60, verse 8, over Edom I will cast my shoe, or cast my sandal. Um, handing over the sa- sandal pictured handing over what went with it, which is also, which is the land in this context. The land is being redeemed. But it's not the only promise that we're reading about in Ruth chapter four. There's two other promises. They come to us in the form of prayers. I want you to skip down to verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. Here's the prayer from the elders. May the Lord 
make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. And you might make a special uh, reference in your Bibles to Rachel and Leah there, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratha and be renowned in Bethlehem. You find it interesting that both Rachel and Leah are mentioned in Ruth chapter four? Um, Brandy and I were riding in the car the other day and talking to Kennedy in the back seat, and there's, usually there's no telling what's gonna come out of the mouth of Kennedy in the back seat riding in the car. Lanes, are you guys here? Dennis and Valerie up there. So we're driving around, and, and for some odd reason, we were talking about all the 12 tribes of Israel and who gave birth to them. And Brandy made the point that it wasn't uh, just Rachel, it wasn't just Leah that gave birth to the 12 tribes, the 12 sons, but you also had these handmaids that were also there. And we said to each other, I wonder what, those, what the names of those ladies were. Do you remember what their names were? Bilhah and Zilpah, is it? Kennedy, my seven, seven-year-old daughter, pipes up from the back. Dad, the two ladies' names are Bilhah and Zilpah. And she, she knew it, just pulled it out of midair. It's because the Lanes are doing excellent Sunday schools at nine o'clock for the first and second graders at TBC, teaching them the names of these women. Um, why, did, why did the elders include Leah? Let's just start there. Rachel was the one that Jacob loved, right? Rachel couldn't give birth. She gives birth to two tribes of Israel. Well, two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, son of my right hand, the favored son. It makes sense to me that they would pray, may your heart, may your lives be like that of Rachel, because her life ended redemptively and, and pretty well, even though she didn't die giving birth to Benjamin. Why, why Leah? Leah was the unloved daughter of Laban. Leah was the one that was um, mysteriously disguised and put in there when Jacob woke up, behold, it was Leah, not Rachel, right? Why is she in there? She's the one that gives birth to Judah. And we find out that Judah is really important in the story of Naomi. Look down at verse 12. May your home be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. In the story of Israel, Leah was the one that was unloved. She was the one that finally gave birth to Judah. Judah's name means, may the Lord be praised. When we get to verse 12, Perez was born from Tamar. Tamar slept with uh, his fa her father, Judah because without having another offspring from Judah, the line of Judah would have ended right there. Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute. Perez isn't the only one that's born, though. Remember? They're twins. Perez comes out. Another baby, Zerah, comes out. Zerah's hand came out of the womb first, and the Hebrew midwife turned, uh, tied a scarlet thread around it. Perez makes this crazy football spin move and comes out of the womb first. 
And here's Zerah that comes behind with this scarlet thread. What's the point? Perez means to break forth, to come forth. Just in a, a quick or a forceful manner. He's the one that will continue the line of Judah. Zerah comes with the scarlet thread tied to his wrist. He's the one that is in line through the scarlet line, the scarlet thread of the Redeemer that Naomi and Ruth carry along in this book of Ruth. It's through this line of Judah that another Redeemer will be born. Not a Redeemer just for Naomi and Ruth's situation, but a Redeemer for all humanity. The reason that you're seeing these names and these promises that are given is is to show the scarlet thread of redemption that has run through the family of Israel, through the family of Judah, bringing about the birth of our Savior. See, this promise doesn't just talk about a few ladies in the Old Testament with miraculous birth stories. This promise takes us all the way back to Genesis 3, a promise that goes back to the Garden of Eden and a pronunciation, a judgment upon Satan. God said to Satan after the fall of man and after that happened and and inflicted all of humanity and corrupted everything that God had created, he said, between your seed and my seed, I will put enmity. I will put enmity between your your offspring and my offspring. My offspring is going to crush you on the head. Your offspring is going to crush him on the heel. In other words, there's going to be a death blow that my offspring is gonna have over your line, Satan. You're gonna bruise him as he hangs on a cross. But through that hanging on the cross, he is gonna redeem humanity. And the scarlet thread of the redemption is given through these promises that even take us back in the book of Ruth. Listen, my, my seminary professors, I said this so often at my church in Kansas that they framed it for me and put it up in my office. It's a statement that has stuck with me since my first year of seminary at DTS. The professor said this. His name was Dr. Allman. He said, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he is too creative to do the same thing in the same way twice. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he is too creative to do the same thing in the same way twice. What did God do in the past He preserved the line of the Redeemer. What did God do for Naomi and Ruth? He preserved the line of a Redeemer. What did he do for us and for all humanity? He preserved the line of the Redeemer leading to the person of Jesus Christ. And that's scarlet bloodline that comes from the cross of Calvary is the one thing that redeems all humanity from our greatest plight. Not from having no children, not from being insignificant and dying poor people, but from the greatest plight of our sin, we have been redeemed because of a promise that goes way back through the history of redemption. Ruth is given to us as a small picture of a great, large, grand redemptive story about Christ, about his kingdom, about him coming to redeem and to restore all things. Hope is shaped by providence. It is stationed by the promises of God. It is also centered in a person. Look down at uh, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Interestingly, for 10 years, Ruth was unable to bear a child to her husband. Right here at Ruth chapter 4, almost seemingly um, right away, it gives birth to a, to a child. 
Verse 14, And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Now, let me ask you a question. Whose name? Who's the name that is to be renowned in Israel? Is, is it the name of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer? Is that the name that we're going to remember forever throughout the history of Israel? Perhaps. The nearest antecedent, may his name be renowned in Israel, would be the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the one who is, who has always been, and the one who is to come. Maybe it's referring to the Lord. Maybe it's referring to Boaz. Maybe it's referring to this child, Obed, who is later on named in the context. Verse 15 says, May he be to you a restorer of life, literally a returner of your soul. That phrase occurs 15 times in the Old Testament, and each time it is very, very significant. Remember when Elijah was trying to raise a little boy from the dead? He prayed to the Lord. He said, may, may breath be restored. Remember the song that we just sang about the breath in our lungs poured out with praise to the restorer of life? This is a, the one who restores life is the returner of the soul. Elijah raises this boy from the dead, praying to return his breath to him. Psalm 23, verse 3, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is the shepherd who restores our strength. The same phrase right there. But I want to end here, and you know, this isn't, I'm going to come back to this. We're going to start a, a new sermon series actually next week for church history as we uh, study the time of the Reformation for the next few weeks. But I'm going to come back to this in November in the book of Ruth. Before we close off, I um, just want to talk about hope and how Ruth ends a very hopeless situation with a bright moment of hope. You guys tell who this little stud muffin is right here? This is bifocal wearing eye impaired Jared Berwheel right there. This is it's my brother. Good grief, get it together. When we, um, my family was born, I was born, my family was born, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, Show Me State, big Cardinal fan growing up. Sorry about that this week, guys. I was terrible. Uh, just going to throw that in, Kirk, man, condolences. When it went into the morning at the church office here after the Cardinals lost this week, it was, it was some dark days. Um, this picture is, is of my family when we lived in St. Louis. It's the first house, first uh, memories. The greatest memories that I have as a kid were really before this age. We moved to Wisconsin when I was six, seven years old, and in first grade was the uh, first grade that I went to in Wisconsin. Is, remember the milk jugs? Has ever put milk jugs like that on your front porch before? Um, it's a picture of my family. I bring out, scroll through my phone every once in a while. I've got a, another one of my mom and dad at their, at their wedding ceremony. I often just go back and 
and look at this every once in a while. You guys probably have pictures in your phone as well that are, uh, bring up distinct memories and, and great experiences, uh, things that you've had and things that you've experienced in your family as well. This is uh, 230 pounds of raw strength. Great dad right there, it's my dad. Um, February 24th, 2016. Probably just stop looking at it. 2016, my dad died of Parkinson's. At the age of 69, And on that day, I text all my family members, my sister Chrissy and Lori in the back, and my mom, and Every year for the last five years, I've sent my mom, my brother, and my sister a text. On February 24th. Gosh, Bill, I might need you to come up and finish the sermon for me. Um, these are some of my greatest memories as a kid. And I think about the days when, golly, if it wasn't for Parkinson's disease, my dad would have never trusted Christ And one day, as I send these texts to my family every year on February 24th, I remind them of all the good memories that we shared, all the good experiences. Christian hope is not escapism. It's not wishful thinking. It's something as Christians that we are, we are meant to do on a daily basis moment by moment. And Christians who do most in the present world are those who think the most of the world to come. C.S. Lewis's famous statement is, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Uh, John Calvin, great reformer, said, faith takes its stand on hope and it hastens beyond this world. But some of the greatest teaching on hope is, is something that gets down to our desires. There's nothing that I desire more at times in life than to just go back um, to experience that relationship with my dad and our family. At times I, I do, I, I desire to do Thanksgiving in Wisconsin again, uh, to be there at Christmas time, 
and to share in those great memories. Every year we, we laugh at some of the, the funniest things that happen. The greatest hope, teaching on hope will take us to desires, and all of us have desires. Some of them are stronger than others. Um, none of them can really be satisfied ultimately on this side of glory. A desire for your spouse, a desire for love. Humanly speaking, your wife, your husband is, is never gonna fulfill everything that you need from a spouse, your human spouse. A desire to travel, a desire to read a good book. Uh, those are great moments, those are great times, but they always leave us wanting. All vacations ultimately come to an end. All our marriages, our spouses are imperfect, our relationships. And there's really three ways that people have dealt with desires. Uh, the first way, Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity, is uh, foolish desires. We look to one thing to satisfy us, to gratify our deepest longings, and when it doesn't fulfill us, we try for the next thing. When that doesn't fulfill us, we try for the next thing. Always searching, always looking for the next thing. It's another person, it's another spouse, another hobby, we try a different one. The fool is always disappointed, always looking for something in this world that this world is not going to fulfill. It's not gonna satisfy you. Others simply give up completely on desires. Just put them to the side entirely. We try to live our lives above desires. We have no desire. We don't have a need for a possession, a status, this thing this person. We stop looking for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow because we realize it can't be found. We stop looking for the perfect vacation destination. Every time we get there, we've got to come back right away anyway. But then there's the way that Christians handle desire, at least that we should handle our desire. Perhaps we have these desires for something perfect. Perhaps we long for these things because God created us for something. He gave us and he, and he put that desire inside of us. Perhaps endless satisfaction really is possible because it's given to us by the creator God and we are all created in his image. Man, when I hit a golf shot this week, I was playing golf with a couple guys. When I hit it just right smack in the middle, there is nothing that feels better. For a moment, I am transfixed into a world of the PGA Tour walking up number 18 at Augusta. <laughs> it's wonderful. I love working with my hands. I've done a lot of woodworking projects and sometimes I'll cut a board that fits so perfectly in a spot that I don't even need nails to hold it on. Just, Troy likes to, just right there. If we find in ourselves a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. On the one hand, we are never ungrateful for earthly blessings. We are always thankful for the gratifications that this world can bring to us, that we can experience and have enjoyment in. On the other hand, we're careful not to mistake them for something else something deeper, the real thing. Perhaps we have this great desire, perhaps I have a desire to go back to St. Louis as a little kid because it's a signpost. It's pointing me towards something deeper. 
a closer reality, something that will never fade, something that can't be lost. Perhaps we experience and we want these desires because God has given us these desires to be met completely and fully in him and in him alone. Naomi and Ruth had some deep, longing desires that were met by the human agency of Boaz and by the birth of a son, Obed, whose name means servant. All of humanity has a desire that goes far deeper than that. We have a desire for significance, for eternal life. We have a desire for the glory of God. We have a desire for living a life that's that's ultimately worthy of him, for a relationship that will never be taken away from us with endless enjoyment and satisfaction that is incomparable to anything that this world has to offer. That desire will be fulfilled in another one who is called the servant, the servant of God. That servant died on a cross for our sins, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins that we might have redemption, we might be redeemed, we also might begin a process of being redeemed, formed more and more into the image of of Jesus Christ. The story of Ruth is a, a story of providence. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of restoration. It's a story of hope that all of our stories are caught up in a much bigger story for Christ and his kingdom a story that will be told over and over and over again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, thank you for giving us the story of Ruth um, as a signpost, as as an indicator of something much deeper. As the guys come up and get ready to play a song here and take the Lord's Supper, God, I pray that you would focus our attention completely and focus our hearts on the kingdom of God to come, on this relationship that many of us in this room have with you because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ on the cross and his death for our sins. And many of us in this room want from you if we would simply turn to you in faith, trusting, depending completely on you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves to save us from our sins. Lord, we all have a great hope. Many things in this world draw us to that hope. I pray that we would distinguish those hopes that are worldly, those desires that are temporary from those that are eternal. And we will find the ultimate desire that all of us have completely wrapped up in a person, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to fix our eyes and our attention on him as we close this morning through the Lord's Supper. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.